This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm well, Max. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got Ian Yang of Gantry on the 3D Pod today, and that's uh, I think that's super exciting because, well, for years I've been telling people that the, the future of a certain amount of product families uh, and additive manufacturing is for arrays or of desktop 3D printers to make consumer goods. And so far there's been precious little evidence of this, so it looked like a bit of a Muppet. And uh, one of the very few companies out there that's really gone far into making really true consumer goods with, with 3D printing using lower-cost systems and really driving this revolution forward is Gantry. And Gantry is focused on lighting. Uh, this is, a, 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 in my opinion, very overlooked but very exciting uh, kind of area. And I just love the fact that these guys are making real consumer products. They're not making stuff for aerospace or satellites or some stuff that's going to work in five years or 3D printing electronics. No, they're making a light bulb or light that you can put on your bedside table right today, right now, and I love that. So that's why I'm really, really happy to, to have Ian on the show today, Ian Yang. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so, so Ian, so first off, tell us a little bit about what, 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 what is Gantry, actually? And Gantry is spelled G-N-T-R-I, right? So what, that's what, right. how did yes. it get started? Yeah, so Gantry is a, uh, a platform for creators to turn their ideas into reality. So we work with um, a lot of different designers and studios and brands, help them develop lighting products that are really unique and sort of true to who they are and sell them directly to consumers. And we help them manufacture these products, obviously using 3D printing, and we ship them direct to customers. Are you guys actually the ones that are, are doing the printing and the assembly or you're, you're contracting that out or you're just kind of helping everyone get connected? Uh, we do everything in-house. So we oh, okay. run a print farm in San Leandro, which is about half an hour away from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, we do uh, everything from working with the designers to figure out, you know, how to design something for 3D printing. We do all the components that go into the product. We do the printing, post-processing, assembly, fulfillment, customer services. And we also run our online marketplace, which is Gantry.com. So we are sort of fully vertically integrated in this effort to create really beautiful, very usable uh, lighting products that are made using this process. But at the end of the day, we are a product company. So everything we do from the printing, from the post-processing, all the designs that we do, they're really geared towards making a really, really good product. Um, and 3D printing is just a really, really great way for us to do that. Um, so you know that's how we approach this whole game of, of running a farm and, um, and making things for our customers. And how did you guys get started? Yeah, that was, uh, it was pretty interesting because my, my background, if you think about, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn or something, um, I've done a lot of different things. I, um, you know, I was born in China. I grew up in the UK. I, I moved to San Francisco about 10 years ago. Um, I studied economics. I went to design school. Um, I worked in a startup as an engineer, as a designer, as a product manager. So like you name it, I've done it. 
Um, so people often ask me, you know, how how did you, you know, end up working on Gantry and starting Gantry? And the quick answer to that was um, back in 2016, I was very curious about learning how to make things. Um, and so I joined the SF Tech Shop, which is a, a machine shop. Um, it's now, you know, currently defunct, but back then it was you know, pretty vibrant. You meet people, all sorts of people, and you learn about things like injection molding and CNC and CAD. And you can take classes and, uh, and meet other makers. And it's a really cool space. And I joined simply out of curiosity. Um, I was, you know, just we want to learn more about how to make things. And, uh, and that's what I had learned about 3D printing for the first time. And uh, before that, my, my background in technology had been primarily software driven. So um, this was just mind blowing for me that you can push a button and then something comes out of the machine. You know? So you guys, it might be <laughs> something you're used to for a long time. But for me back then, it was, it was just magical. And for me, I immediately thought about design. You know, that's something that I'm really passionate about. That's immediately where my mind went because I know that designers are always struggling to get their ideas out. The, the MOQs of the factories are typically really high. So, you know, I thought, okay, what if I could use 3D printing to help produce design? Um, that would solve a lot of problems. That would introduce new products to the market and these designers can make some money. So that's really how the idea of Gantry was born. So you, the first time you would have been exposed to uh, a 3D printer was actually at one of these, uh, like at a makerspace? Yeah, um, yeah, funny. I was going to say, we started out of, a, my company started out of a makerspace in Boston called the Artisan's Asylum. So it was of awesome. a similar kind of nature where it's like, oh, let's join this thing and see what's cool. And it's interesting to see how makerspaces actually have produced a number of companies. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. At the tech shop as well, I think, I think type... A was based there too. I think that's what they started before they moved and 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 now it's closed. Um, but yeah, it was just an incredible community. It was a lot of people, very friendly. I was obviously a newbie, and so I was like, oh, you know, how does this work? How does slicing work? You know, how does G code work? And and then took a bunch of classes, and I just like spoke to a lot of people about this about this technology, about the potential of three D printing. And I distinctly remember um, that was, you know, a few years after this whole hype cycle around MakerBots and sort of this vision of having a printer in every home. And I think, you know, for me, that vision was just so grand and so promising. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, this is really a way of making products. And so I immediately connected that to manufacturing. You know, for me, it's a consumer product and something you can use at home for sure. But also, it's something I can use to make things at scale, um, and that's what really interested me in building Gantry. You know, I, you know, I, I've seen other platforms where um, you can help, you know, print something for somebody from your own printer, and that's really inter interesting, very exciting. Um, uh, but for me, I'm I'm a product person through and through. You know, I care about how can I create the best product at the lowest cost for a particular segment of customers. And, and the, the customers and, and the creators I knew best were design customers. So I you know, immediately thought, okay, you know, how, how do I think about this in, in terms of the home space? How do I think about this in terms of what type of industry it really is? What are the problems that we see in an industry? Which is really you know, about the fact that making furniture and home goods is really expensive. You, know, you kind of think about the desks and the chairs that you sit on and use. 
you don't think about them as these you know really high complex engineering products but actually they are um there's a lot of materials that go into them they're um you know typically produced in 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 east asia and then shipped here and then the 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 shipping cost is really high because the volume is high right and the, the cost of storing these products are really high and so you know it's a it's a sort of a really interesting industry in that there's there's so many products and so much talent and yet there's only a few places you can go and buy home goods right you know ikea and target and west elm and all that um and everything else that is creative is design forward is extremely expensive and out of touch for most people and for me the theory is that manufacturing is really the reason why design is so out of touch you know from consumers it's it's the reason why designers can very easily you know turn their ideas into something they can sell and and become you know design entrepreneurs you know and so that was a really exciting prospect for me when i when i learned about 3d printing it's like oh actually this technology is not just for making you know trinkets and replacement parts which are obviously amazing but it's really has a huge potential to solve a real real problem in a huge industry so you see it as the breaking down of barriers from design Absolutely. to actual physical product which i totally yeah if you don't have to do tooling if you don't have to have a factory set up on yes. large scale uh yeah no that's interesting is there any of the products that you guys have done where the volume has exceeded what you're capable of doing on the 3D print side and you have had to look at returning to traditional manufacturing as a result? Do you, do you mean if we've seen a product that sells really well and- we Yeah, like the volume is just so high that it's like, mm-hmm. okay, now it doesn't make sense to 3D print it because we're talking about like 10,000 units a year or something. And therefore, like now it actually makes sense to go back to traditional manufacturing because of, of just the sheer volume. Or is, would you consider that if an item was was of that volume? That's a great question, and and actually something that um, my team internally asked me that a lot. They're like, "Oh, you know, we have it's less of a product, but more like a part. You know, this part we produce a ton of them. Can mm-hmm. we mass produce them? Does that make sense?" And I think you know, from from a sort of business vision perspective, what we are trying to accomplish is this this sort of singular process, endless form variations model. And what that means is, you know, is it possible for you to use the exact same process and the exact same, you know, think about, you know, from a manufacturing perspective, the same workflow to produce tens and thousands of different products. That's the dream and that's what we're working towards. And to achieve that, we have to commit to this process. We have to unlock what this process can do. And even though we technically can transfer some of the parts that we make from 3D printing to a more traditional process, we decide against it, right? Because we want to stress the system. We want to see, you know, what are the things that could cause it to break down. We want to figure out a more efficient, more effective workflow. Um, and so even though we technically can transfer over, we decide not to do that. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Also, like, okay, San Francisco. Great place mm-hmm. to raise money, but it's expensive. Even if you're yes. near San Francisco, you could have put this thing in China or the Czech Republic or Spain or or Tennessee or whatever. So, so why why do you think it makes sense to put it where you put it? And is that the the, the idea going forward as well? Or yeah, that's a great question. It's it's definitely very expensive. I think Bay Area is one of the most expensive labor markets in the U.S. and and then 
possibly the world. And I think what it really comes down to is engineering. Um, one thing I want to know is that you know we're we're sort of not just a three D printing company, even though we we do operate um, a pretty large farm. I, I listened to the podcast that you guys did with with Slant. Um, I think they have something like three thousand printers in 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 their farm. Ours is a little smaller. We have about thousand eight hundred printers, but still a sizable you know print fleet. Um, and, um, and and running that farm, you can do that of course anywhere. But in order for you to build a process that's capable of producing really high quality finished end products that customers want to buy, there are a lot of dials in figuring out that production process. So for us, it's not just the printing, it's, it's, it's also the hardware, it's the materials, it is the QC process that we use. You know, Think about how you can QC uh, thousands of different geometries to the same quality standard, right? You know, that, that's a very difficult, very complex challenge. And then there's post-processing, which are you know, sanding and painting and color matching and, and, all, and all that. And then there's assembly. And then there's all, all of the automation that we implement in between. And then there's the software system that we use to manage the flow end-to-end. Um, and so all of that requires a lot of iterations and a lot of <laughs> working with the engineers. And so, of course, you know, the, the idea has definitely come up. Hey, you know, would it be cheaper for us to build this elsewhere? The answer is, of course, yes. At the same time, you know, my engineers are here. There's a, there's a, a huge amount of talent in terms of you know, hardware engineers, industrial designers, and just people who are really passionate about you know, doing some things in, the, in, in a physical space in the Bay Area. So I think from that perspective, we've definitely picked the right place. Um, and I'll also say you know, our vision is really about local manufacturing. It's about producing things as close to customers as possibly can to eliminate and reduce that last mile shipping. Um, and the fortunate truth is you know, half, more than half of our customers are on, on the West Coast. You know, there are um, people living you know, in San Francisco and LA and Seattle. And so for us, having a farm on the West side of, of the US makes sense. The unfortunate truth is that the other half are on the East Coast. And so at some point, we definitely want to open up a facility on the East Coast, close to New York and Boston, so we can fulfill orders for these customers. So, so companies like MJX have been making, like MJX are part of Materialize, making lighting for a long time using powder bed fusion machines. And you guys opted for, for like using desktop type machines, material extrusion. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, there's a lot of problems. Initially, we see like the finish of the product and that kind of stuff is going to be really difficult. But again, then you have a lot of materials and, and it's really low cost. What was the reason to go to desktop machines? Did you just like print your first lamp on a desktop machine and run with it? Or was it more strategic? Yeah, it's primarily a cost quality analysis. There are obviously a lot of different processes um, we've experimented with, and um, and and then the cost of industrial um, scale production is just really high on a per part level. And you know, our in our thinking is really around the end product, right? What is the end product? Who are going to be buying these products? What's their price point? You know, what do they, what's the sort of opportunity for us as a company to tackle that market? And our understanding and our theory is, you know, tackling that sort of higher end premium mass market market, which is sort of where, where we sit in terms of price points. Um, if you go into the, to the really, really expensive, you know, high end design space, you don't really need 3D printing because the volume is not there and you can just hand craft a lot of the products. 
and, and so that cost is really really important sort of factor in us considering uh, which process to use. And, and FDM is a is a relatively cost effective process. There are things you have to do to it to make the products feel you know really luxurious, right? There's the post processing of you know smoothing the surface, but also the materials. The materials that we use are not off the shelf materials. Um, took us a really long time to figure out, you know, how to, you know, dial the different dials and, and you know, changing you know, strength and printability and, and surface finishes and, and obviously the, the slicing of the actual parts themselves as well. So there's a lot of things we have to do to make this process work. But from a cost perspective, it's still the one that makes the most sense for us. You're using PLA as your main material? Or a version of PLA, I should say. It's sort of yeah. It's a good question. It's sort of um, we have two blends, and both are um, made for us by Colorfab, and mm-hmm. we've been working with them for the for the past you know five six years, and you know really great guys, very supportive, um, and uh, and the starting point is is really that material is a is a very critical piece of the puzzle for any home goods, right? So I think you guys are getting a theme that you know we really care a lot about. The end product and what that means for customers. It's not just about printing parts. It's about making a really, really good product. Um, and so the 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 issue with sort of the I guess the run of the mill PLA or PETG or anything like anything like that is they don't really fit some of the the requirements for lighting. And some of the materials don't don't really work for us when we we're trying to build this this idea that hey the future of home the future of Design is really about sustainability, right? This is a really core component of the Gantry brand. So, you know, our brief and our request for ColorFab was, okay, we have to create blends that are engineered for lighting and really sustainable. Like those two are the main things. And PLA as a base is really great. The one that we use is for uh, from uh, Total Corbion. These are Thai um, Shuriken-derived PLA. But that only makes up, you know, seventy percent of the blend. The rest are uh, other things that we've added in in order for us to achieve sort of the, the the functional quality you need for using lighting. So things like HDT, things like you know tensile strength, printability is a really big thing. You know how easy is this to print? How soft is the material for post processing? Those are all really important things that we think about. Um, and then we also have this diffusive blend which is you know really smooth you look at our diffusers they're they're really beautiful they're really clear they're really smooth um, so that's a really important thing and then also uh, uv degradation over time so if you use a you know a straight pla a yellows over time we've done uv test you know every material that we test we put it through a thousand hours of florida sunshine to make sure that it doesn't yellow and doesn't deform and so the vast majority of materials on the market that are available for FDM simply won't pass that criteria. So, so that's why we create our own materials. And so this is a really important sort of pillar of the brand now that we think about our products, not only in terms of the process, but the end benefit that that delivers to the customer. Yeah, always like startups like to have the secret sauce, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, would you say the secret sauce for you guys is, is about bringing all these people things together, bringing the printers, the the material, the processes, the software, and kind of integrating them into a production system, system if you will? Or what, what is the secret sauce behind Gantry? Like? You nailed it. <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it better. 
Um, you know, our secret sauce is really about integration and understanding of both the technology of utilizing 3D printing in a production environment and understanding how to create products that customers actually want. Um, I think there's a lot of you know technical know-how in the world on the market in 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 the community about 3D printing on its own and there's a lot of you know great talents out there there are a lot of great vendors for machines for materials um and there are people that operate print farms just like us who are special don't specialize in what they do um and then there are also people who are you know very good at running factories right and so and and there's of course this whole industry the design industry full of amazing talented designers who know how to design something who know how to use cad who know how to um uh tell a story right and uh and and so what we do is we sort of get everybody in the same room together and figure out how we can build really amazing products for customer using this process that makes economical sense Right, because if we were to, you know, last year we launched, I don't know, twenty, thirty products. Typically, in in a design industry, a single manufacturer launches about a product one per year. You know, so so we are only able to do that as a small company because we use this process because we are on demand, right? And so there's a lot of really amazing business benefits of us using three D printing, but that's not enough. There's so much else that, that goes around it to make this successful that 3D printing almost only becomes a, a part of the equation, part of the puzzle. So yes, definitely, I would say our secret sauce is by pulling all the know-how from different industries together to produce really great products. I'm curious about the post-processing aspect of it. Like, are you, are you guys, have you automated this on some level or are you like, sanding by hand and lovingly mm. hewing the, you know, the PLA into, into a fine crafted device? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, so when I think about post-processing, it's really about how do we get the finish that we want on the product in a way that's cost-effective. Automation is a buzzy word, uh, but it doesn't really do that much if it's not designed right, if it's not solving the right problem. When we think about post-processing, I mean, there, are, there are certain steps in place. There's you know, sanding and painting and priming and all that. And so the way that we think about it is how can we do it the most efficiently possible, which means very often thinking about it through batching and workflow optimization and so on and so forth. And there are obviously some tools that we design in place to make it really nice and easy for, for people to hold parts them to send parts. Um, but a lot of this is really about continuous improvements and operational workflow design, more so than automation. And that's why software plays such a key role in the way that we handle production. So we did, you know, develop our own system. I think many farms that operate on machines do that too. The difference is probably that you know, our system not only handle the job assignments for machines, we also do, it also does, you know, all of the workflow tracking from QC to, to you know, prioritizing jobs based on different types of orders, tracking inventory. So every you know, faster we use in, in the facility, we track them in the system. It also allows workers to scan parts 
you know, every single part that goes through our system or RFID tagged. So, you know, every single time someone scans a part, it updates the location to tell us what that part is, it enables batch workflow, it tracks machine maintenance. And then on top of that, it tracks all of the orders, all the designs that designers have created. So it's a really powerful system. So, so uh, I guess to answer your question in, in sort of a long one way, um, automation is important for post-processing, but in our experience, operational improvements and, and you know, smart workflow planning have made a much bigger difference in productivity than did automation did. I like the idea of combining that that kind of smart workflow stuff with, for example, the large amount of models you can produce and also mm-hmm. fashion risk, right? You guys, okay, you, 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 there's a cost for you to make, you can't make infinite lamps, right? You have to develop them and test them, all this kind of stuff. But I like the idea of having less fashion risk than another brand. Oh, no, we sold three. Oh, well, we try again, you know? Or we keep this mm-hmm. design on the books. Maybe 10 years from now, it becomes possible uh, that, that this thing is popular again, right? So I, I like the idea of not having these unsold models and unsold inventory. You know, it, it does, you're absolutely right. It does cost money to develop products. It costs money to maintain them, right? So every time, you know, we have this rolling versioning system that's a little bit uh, alien to most manufacturing people, which is we don't have design freezes and our products go through continuous updates um, as they enter production. So we have, you know, minor versions and major versions and, you know, small updates can be pushed out directly into production for small versions. Um, and so, it, you know, engineers are working on these updates, right? And so it does cost money for us to maintain a particular product. Um, that being said, uh, we don't produce inventory. You know, we have very few inventories. We're, um, uh, we just keep some of them like marketing and, and things like that. Um, and, um, and we can technically keep the products on the market, even if, you know, they don't sell. Of course, the whole point of this is for designers to have the freedom of experimenting a little, right? So they don't have to be like, oh, I have to sell, I know, let's say MOQ, 5,000 units in order for me to make this work. I can sell 500 units and it will make sense for me. And so they can then take risks. They can then say, all right, I'm going to try this thing out. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, let me try it again, right? So this is much closer and much faster in terms of um, iteration and feedback loop than the traditional process, which takes years and years and years. And so I think, you know, right now, even though we've been around for a few years, we're still really early stage. And our goal is to really build up this platform. So the process of somebody launching designs and testing them and finding their audiences becomes much more streamlined and much less sort of, you know, labor intensive. And then it would really unlock a lot of different types of businesses that designers can, can build. Um, uh, and then I'm really, really excited about that prospect. And how would it work? Like, let's say I'm a designer. I'm like, oh, I want to work with Gantry. How would that work? Uh, how would the process of me working with you uh, go about? That's a great question. Um, so we have an online platform called Create Hub. And Create Hub is sort of a, like an Etsy store, like shop management system plus design submission system. So um, as a designer, you can log in and, and, you know, submit new designs and, you know, track your sales and see orders and, you know, things like that. And so in order for you to get access to Create Hub, you first have to pass 
um, sort of our you know vetting process, and that vetting process is is really a process about um, your fit as a designer to work with us. It's not about you know how capable you are, because you know there's a lot of really capable designers. It's really about how clear your story is. Um, that's more of a marketing exercise to make sure that hey, you're a designer, you know who you are, you know what kind of story you want to tell. You know who your audience is, and once you know we figured that part out, then you're invited to to join Create Hub, and you can start using um, uh, our platform to start designing your products. Now, the way that we work in terms of education is that within Create Hub, there's a whole documentations website. We can learn about all the design constraints with 3D printing. You can learn about how to to assemble a light. You can download the CAD um, files of all the components that we offer. So things like rods or bulb sockets or LEDs or cord switches or you know whatever it is that we offer. You can download them from Create Hub. You can then integrate and learn about how to integrate those those into your into your CAD. And then once you're ready, you can then submit them to us for review. Um, and our engineer would then collaborate with you directly via Create Hub. So we have this messaging feature that you can, you know, chat about. You know, here's the update to your design. You know, here's our recommendations of how you can adjust it so that it fits with our, you know, manufacturability requirements better. Here's how you can think about the customer experience of how they can change a light bulb and so on and so forth. Um, so that's sort of how the the design vetting process happens. And when a product is almost done. Again, it then gets passed to our sort of marketing creative department. We have a studio in San Francisco where we do all of the photo shoots. So all of the photos, editorial photos you see on the website, um, we shoot them all in-house. So the studio, we, it's basically like a set. So we would bring in um, furniture for each collection. Um, and these are furniture designed you know, according to what the story is, who the designer is, to make sure that they're really on brand for them. So a designer who loves to do really interesting, poppy, colorful things will choose colorful furniture. Designer who wants to do something that's a bit more minimal, more subdued, then we'll choose furniture that goes with that. And we'll create a set. And we have like different walls and backdrops and wooden flooring and concrete flooring and brick floors. And um, so, uh, so, so we can create that you know, model room. And then we'll do the photo shoot and then we'll schedule it for launch. So it's a pretty involved process from start to finish. Um, and we collaborate a whole lot with the designer to realize each product. Then do you, as a result, because that's a lot of effort and energy obviously, <laughs> for every design, does that mean that you limit how many designs like a designer can generate during a time period or, or something of that nature? Or how, how do you determine which designs, I guess, to move forward with and go through the rest of that process? Yeah. Um, yeah, we definitely love them. And it is a very involved process. And over the years, we've tried to make it a bit more streamlined, I would say. Um, and right now, it's it's pretty decent. You know, it, it sounds like a lot of things and it, it is. Um, but we, we've sort of established the, the, the process already. So we know like, okay, now you do this, then you do that, then you do that. So the, the process, we'll figure it out already. Um, in terms of the number of products that we work with designers on, um, we have this briefing process that's pretty unique in that in a traditional design industry, the manufacturer or the brand will give 
a designer a brief about who the brand is, who the customer is, what kind of product the brand wants from the designer. And we do a version of that where we sort of push the designer to be very deliberate and intentional about who they are. You know, what is your story? What makes you unique? And what is your fresh perspective? And from there, we then help them craft their own brief of, okay, based on your brand, here are the products that um, that uh, you want to create, right? And so typically, um, with this process, we don't actually get all that many products in, in terms of submission because it's such an involved and brain-intensive process that the designer end up understanding, hey, you know, I, I don't just want to create product, but an object. I want to think through how I'm going to market that product later. I want to think through what it looks like, what it feels like, what the customer is. And so it's a very involved exercise. And in the end, you know, maybe they, they, they start with, you know, 12 ideas and they whittle it down to like three or two, right? So, so this process actually helps, up, helps us produce better designs and helps the designers become more intentional in what they want to create. Um, so in the end, actually, the numbers are just fine. You know, we launch products a couple times a year. Sometimes we will launch them in an exercise that we call independent creative release, which is basically we group you know, five, eight different designers together in a single release and release all of them to the market at the same time. Sometimes we, depending on a person, we will do a separate release because you know, they themselves have an audience that they can release to. It really depends. But um, you know, once we pick out the right designers to work with, once we have that briefing ready, we typically will manufacture and produce every feasible manufacturer product that we can. I think that's interesting, but it's also kind of at the same time, it's kind of risky, this whole process, because like on the one hand, you know, with 3D printing, you've got a lot of variability. So you could turn, you could have a collections that are completely all over the place, right? But if you work so closely with them, you end up maybe having everybody look the same. How, how do you make that balance between, on the one hand, reaching new customers, reaching new designs, really pushing the envelope, which is super easy to do with 3D printing, and then on the same time, you know, have stuff that you like without having it all look like it's by the same people. That's right. So you're asking how we can make sure that there's differentiation across designers? Well, well, I think I think the thing is that we saw, I call this like the quirky problem, right? Remember the quirky? It was this giant mm -hmm. platform, yes. open oh, yeah, innovation. I, I, was, I did so much, like, uh, uh, I was at Shapeways at the time. We did so much, like, info. I did so much research into them. And... We end up having a uh, what we what I end up concluding is that everyone looked everything looked the same, and then aesthetically it was all all the same, even though the ideas came from thousands of different people generating ideas, mm -hmm. and tens of thousands of other people uh, adding to those ideas. So the, the, you either bought into their aesthetic and their way, or you didn't, and that was like a big risk for them. And that's one of the reasons they failed. I spent a ton of time trying to auto autopsy them when they went wrong because I was it was such a surprising thing for us. So I, I just figured like yeah, how on the one hand are you going to say? I want different designers. I want them to look the same, but we work so close with them. You end up like maybe, you know, you pick a designer, you pick Mary because maybe Mary is the same aesthetic and maybe you end up being kind of like, you know, like cartel, you know, if I see cartel, I know it's a cartel thing because they all look alike. They have the same materials. It's the same kind yes. of thing. So how do you keep that variability? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's something that we definitely think about a lot. I personally think about them very often, but I'm reaching new designers and 
you know, last year I, I, I sort of gave a talk at this um, design conference and, and think, you know, people were asking me for my advice and how they can really stand out as designers. And, and, and my experience has been, you know, very often it's really difficult to distinguish between different designers. They can all look and feel the same. The portfolio all have this sort of Apple-esque back, you know, light gray background. It's all perfectly rendered. Um, and so one of the things that we push for is personality. You know, who is the designer? What is your story? What makes you unique? And when you, you know, take your attention away from, from, from their portfolio for one second and you look at who they are as real humans, all of a sudden you connect with them and you see, you know, that they are different. They're really different. Um, we have designers who, um, you know, have come from a traditional industrial design background but I've gone through the exercise of brand building with us and have done their own little mini rebrands. And very often these new brands or these new ideas come out of it looking very different than what they had before. And so we really push sort of that nuance, that you know, differences in narratives forward and use that as part of the package for us to determine whether if their product is something that matches their personality and their brand. So I don't know if that's answered your question, but I think you know what 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 we do that's different is we don't think about 3D printed things. We think about them as products with narratives and with a person behind them. Without these sort of additional information, they're just objects. They have no soul. And our goal with this whole process is to inject soul into each product. And, and that's one way that we use to differentiate them. Of course, there's other ways. You know, we, we introduce new colors all the time, new shapes. You know, we would, uh, you know, remove products and in- introduce new ones if we see, like, you know, there's a, there's a particular trend, a market that we, we think is interesting. You know, we launched this, you know, bright yellow color a couple years ago and uh and i think they were selected as you know pentone color of the year or something and and you know we're obviously in tune with with sort of the the um the latest in 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 consumer uh trends and industry trends but but i think the key is really that soul of the person um that's my experience Uh, i think i think that's that's really key for you guys as well i mean i think uh, and and why do you get customers? I mean, and there's a big part as well. I mean, I, I could do a lot of what you guys are doing, but I think also besides the production system, the magic sauce is trying to connect with customers. Mm-hmm. And are you doing that through the 3D printing, or is that through the design, or is that through like you know just being really good at, 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 at growth marketing and stuff like that? Or mm. how do you really make that connection that, that you know connect that soulful product, if you will, with, yeah. with someone who's willing to, to 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 buy it? Yeah. No. Definitely. So. I'm a very story-driven person, and I think a lot of our customers are also. Um, our sort of primary customer demographic are people in the in the creative field, so you know designers and and architects and you know fashion people, writers, and and so on and so forth. And and I think what really attracts this community is the fact that they appreciate a company trying to do something a little different. They appreciate that we have a huge focus on, 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 on individuals, the designers, the people behind the product. They appreciate the fact that we are focusing on sustainability. And we do a lot of work in improving just some really basic lighting features 
um, that you don't really see on the market. You know, like we design our own switch. You know, we have different LEDs. You know, we we design a wall light that can be installed directly into the wall with only one fastener. Um, you know, like all of these usability, user experience, design components, other companies don't really think about, and we pay a lot of attention to them. So in the end, you end up with a product that looks nothing like what you will find in you know, Crit and Barrel and uh, uh, West Ham. No shade to them, but you know they're very different. And these products are pretty affordable, you know, relative to 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 luxury design. They're designed by real people that they know we as a company care a lot about. They're made from sustainable materials that are 100% biodegradable. They know that um, the LEDs you get are the best on the market in terms of CRI, light reproduction, you know, lumens to watts. They have dimmers on them. We use really nice cords. They're packaged well. They're made in the US. You know? so, so all of these components just make our products really stand out. And the 3D printing aspect is sort of secondary. And obviously, you know, this is a 3D printing podcast and I think it's really important. And we wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be possible without 3D printing, right? It's an enabler. It's a foundational piece of who we are as a company. But from a customer's perspective, they don't really care. And many of them don't really know that these are 3D printed. We put it all on a website, these are 3D printed. But most of them are just like, this looks cool. This looks nice. It's from a designer, not from a big corporation. It's sustainable. Great lighting. Boom. That's the reason. You know. So we really think a lot about what impacts a customer experience versus what is a business vision attribute that don't really impact the customer so much. Um, and so that's why we created this co- co- community of customers who love our stuff. You know, we have a lot of influencers we work with on Instagram, on TikTok. Um, and, uh, you know, very often I'll go to a bar and, you know, meet a creative person and I'll, t- I'll tell them that, you know, I, you know, I work at Gantry or sorry, Gantry. And they're like, oh, I, I know Gantry because for them, it's just really cool products, you know, really cool things, very cool way of doing things. And, you know, this heavy emphasis on sustainability. I love that. I love it. And the, so, Thank you. Uh, so one thing I think is we've talked about the system, but you also at one point you you have your own printer, right? The dancer is that still something that's right. You you did or you continue to do because because I can imagine because I looked at this thing or I looked at the rendering of it. It looks mm-hmm. like a, a a Delta system, right? Kind uh, of. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a cylindrical system three D printer. Yeah. So what I was thinking is like that you made a printer to do spiralize, mm-hmm. essentially, or not. <laughs> So literally yeah. <laughs> make like kind of cylinder, cylindrical objects. And I thought, oh, that's cool. They optimized it for like lamps. Mm-hmm. Or is that not true? Is it a coincidence? Yes. Yeah, so firstly, you know, you have great memory because it's been a few years since we talked about Dancer. Um, and uh, and it's, still, it's still here. You know, you know we, have, we have the prototypes. We work with it um, very often. Um, it's not currently used in production, not because it doesn't work, because um, it's a pretty complex piece of machinery, and 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 if something breaks, it's quite hard to fix. So, from like an operational, um, operational, I guess, um, efficiency perspective, it, it's not the same as you know a regular FDM printer that you can you know our technician can fix in like an hour. Or so, like you know, Dancer takes like an engineer to fix. You know, it's it's quite complex, and and we're still thinking through. Um, how to value engineer it or how to operations engineer the machine 
in order for it to work better in a production environment. So that's really where we are at for that machine. Um, it was really designed to speed up the printing process because, you know, you guys know how you know how long something takes to to, to print on a, on a desktop FDM machine. You know, some of our parts take you know two days, right? It's, it's a really long time, and um and and more than the time, it's it's what happens if something goes wrong. You lose two days of printing, right? Like you know, a piece of debris falls into a print, which happens more often than I can think about. We want to speed up the printing time so that less errors can happen during print, and so. Um, so that's really what that was for. And it was, you know, we, we printed a lot of cylindrical parts, which is pretty common in our, in our, uh, catalog or library. So we're, the answer is we're still thinking through how to fit that machine into our production process, but there are some hurdles we have to overcome in order for us to do that. And, and have you looked at printer? Well, well, actually, so you're kind of saying that you use a different printer. Do you want mind telling us what it is or it's okay to not tell us? But, Cause that, I would be interested to know, like, you know, we've seen that Prusa has essentially released its kind of like the, the print farm printer it uses mm-hmm. itself, the XL, I think. And, you know, but for you guys, it's a critical thing. I mean, you could get an Ultimaker, which relatively works all the time, but mm-hmm. hey, isn't very open. You could get a Prusa, you could get a Creality. I mean, what are you guys thinking about? Yeah, we have our print farm is currently mainly Creality machines. They're heavily modified. So there are Creality machines where we change out the build plate, change out the hot end, changed out the extruder and and you know so on and so forth adjusted the firmware and things like that so that's what we have right now um we're always exploring different machine vendors and and working with them to um to to improve you know print quality yield and and so on and so forth um and right now we're in collaboration with a few machine vendors to sort of think about the next machine iteration that we can use um, there are some limitations. I mean, the the, the Prusa XL. I, I haven't actually seen one of them in in real life. You know, I, I've seen them in YouTube videos, and I know that they had a whole um, uh, sort of presentation. Um, you know, I, I'm just waiting for them to to arrive at our at our facility so we can test them. Um, what we've seen is, you know, our products are fairly big. You know, there there are diffusers that print up to 12 inches wide, and so we need a certain build volume for this to work. And we also need a certain level of resolution, right? Um, so, you know, typically what we see is these mass scale machines can print relatively fast with a uh, with a larger nozzle with a you know taller layer height, but the resolution don't quite match what we need for this more intricate kind of consumer grade product. And uh, and the machines that are really good, high resolution, low failure rates, they're smaller, right? So so I think our search has been, let's get a machine that's like really high print quality, really fast, but also big enough for us to fit most of the parts. Um, and so, you know, if you're a machine vendor that you feel like you have a machine that works for us, let us know, you know, reach out and then we'll chat. Yeah, definitely. Cool. I think it's, it's kind of this in between. If you guys looked at like really large high flow machines, like with Dyes Design, Typhoon, it's kind of like, because that's what you're referring to, like, like large build volume, you could do uh you know you could do it quite you could get a lamp in, in an hour or two with a, 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 a high flow machine but 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 that you know that won't you know have you looked extensively in that kind of thing too or, is, or not really we've seen some of them um i am not 100 percent familiar so i have to sort of uh defer to my engineers who's done the research on this i've only seen a few examples of sort of the the, the 
top contenders, but we are looking at large format machines right now. Um, and, um, and we've seen a few that are interesting. Um, and I think we kind we of reach out to them to ask for samples and, um, you know, get test prints. So, you know, we're definitely interested in any large format machine that can, you know, print at the resolution and the quality that we need. Um, you know, I'm happy to also send you guys like a, like a product if you haven't seen them in real life. I mean, the, the, our diffusers are completely raw. They're no, they're no, um, we don't post-process them. You can see they're very, you know, really, really smooth for a 3D printed part. And a lot of work goes into, you know, the slicing, the CAD, the, the machine calibrations to make sure we can print them directly out of the machine. And so I would say the vast majority of parts that I've seen, I've seen from machines on the market would not make it through our QC process. Um, that's the unfortunate truth. And, you know, if I see any machines that can produce really high quality, highly precise parts, I'm, I'm definitely interested. Totally, totally. And, and so I think also, I also, I think there's an interesting point here because you're now at a point where I think your business is going well, at least based on what I've heard. And you could just keep doing what you're doing, right? Or you could like put a whole bunch of 3D printing centers all over the world making lights. Or you could open up the floodgates and have a thousand designers who kind of uncontrolled make lamps. Or you could start making desks and stuff like this. You know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, I think that you're in a really the quirky problem. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you're in a really nice place, which makes you kind of more ambitious and also is kind of dangerous, I think. So I'm hearing you're asking what's our what's what's next for us, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if, if I ask you what's next, that's good. But 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 I think it's also it's it's nice to you know from these kind of comfortable. I, I'll tell you a story. Like my my dad had a had drove Lexuses for 11 years. He had not hmm. one problem with with a different Lexus, right? Then he went and bought a Lancia, right? This is <laughs> so I call this a Subaru problem. So when you're used to something working all the time. Mm -hmm. then you don't think car quality should maybe figure in your next decision. So why? So you, be, you start to have this confirmation bias kind of thing happening in, 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 in a lot of things, you know? So I think it's the same thing, but the business is going well. And I just think that, yeah, I think, you know, normally, yeah, we do always ask people like, hey, what's next? But, but with you, I think it's just this, you're in a comfortable place, but the next kind of step is going to be really scary in my mind. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily use the word comfortable to describe our, our current place. Uh, manufacturing is, 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 is very complex. It's not, um, it's not something I can close my eyes and it just runs on its own automatically. We're we faced with, um, with different types of challenges every single day. You know, sometimes, you know, like one, one example, um, you know, over the past few months, like the Bay Area got super cold. And uh, and very rainy, so our facilities leaked, and you know the AC failed. You know, and when AC fails, you know parts don't cure properly, and and and, and start things start warping from the machines. Like there's constant issues that we have to address, and constant problems we want to tackle. So a, a big chunk of our work really goes into uh, manufacturing engineering, figuring out how we can produce the same products at a higher efficiency, so we can really utilize. You know a lot of our our production capacity and capabilities, and and also you know to support designers. So so that's a major challenge for us, and we're still in the process of of overcoming those. Um, and I think you know once we overcome them, I think the the idea is is really um, 
you know, we're obviously interested in growth and, and we want to make sure that we do it in a way that supports our mission. And our mission is really to support creators, to support designers. And so very often we talk to them and we ask, okay, you know, what are the things that we can do to support you? How can we increase your income? How can we think about ways that, um, that you can do better? And, and that's a really great way, a dialogue for us to get direction on where we can go as a company. And maybe the answer is, um, is new materials, new categories. And, you know, I have uh, nothing to share right now, but if anything comes up, definitely you guys be the first to know. Um, but, you know, what we definitely won't do is open the floodgate. You know, that's, I think, a very dangerous thing to do. And it doesn't really create a very thoughtful, intentional sort of plan to make sure that we continue to create great products for our customers, that they're delivering, they're getting a, a really you know, high quality experience. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the designers who have supported us, who have worked with us, are continuing to get an amazing experience, right? So, so you know, it would definitely be thoughtful. It would be planned. It would be, you know, engaged with the community and getting feedback from them. Um, so I think as we grow, that's how we would approach our growth in a way that supports our mission. Um, so, you know, hope that answers your question. Totally, dude. Totally. And thank you so much, Ian. Thank you so much for this explanation. I think I'm really fascinated by the company. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> thing you, you guys are doing. And uh, lighting, I think, is an amazing product category. And and I think it's one of those things where it's like, it's like it's like making a really good cookie. It looks really easy, <laughs> but to make a to, anyone can make an okay cookie. No, seriously, anyone can make an okay cookie, but to make a really good cookie is very very difficult. And I think that's the those are key to businesses that really last a long time and do very well. So I think I'm really fascinated by their business. I love it. So thank, thank you for you being so here much. today, and and uh, Max, thank you so much for being here today. No, yeah, this was great, and uh, likewise, Ian. I find it fascinating that you you by focusing you made a better model than like a quirky model. So congrats, appreciate it, totally. And uh, thank you for being for being with us today as well. This is the three D Pod, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Three D Pod. For more information on what you just heard, or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.